0: Welcome to the Best of Left podcast. We are in the final days of our climate ride fundraiser. We ran the campaign for a couple of months and put it on hiatus, but we didn't actually reach our goal. So we're coming back for round two. The actual drop dead deadline is just a couple of weeks away in this month. So if you can contribute any amount, it would be helpful and would go to a good cause that I've been supporting for years. So there's a link in the show notes right on your device and, of course, at bestofleft.com. Thanks for your support, and now welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the problem with Facebook, the most recent scandal, their ongoing scandal that's baked right into their business model, and some thoughts on what to do about it. Our clips today come from The David Pakman Show, The Majority Report, On the Media, Start Making Sense, The News with Dan Rather, The Inquiry, and The Tom Hartman Program. And stick around to the end for my conversation with a misunderstood Trump supporter and my breakdown of what I think are our differing understandings of freedom.
1: We are in the throes of one of the biggest tech privacy scandals in a very long time. It's now apparent that the data analytics firm Cambridge Analytica, uh, which worked for the Trump campaign. We learned. Uh, over the last 24 hours based on a channel four report that they engage in everything from the hiring of prostitutes to blackmail setups and entrapment in order to work for their clients. Cambridge Analytica working for the Trump campaign in the most recent presidential election inappropriately gained access to the data of 50 million Facebook users. The data of those 50 million users ended up in the hands of Cambridge Analytica and according to some reports has not been deleted. Cambridge Analytica says that they don't have the data. It's unclear. Facebook saying we've asked them to delete it, but they haven't. And a completely different story being told by CA. When I heard that, please delete, it reminds me of when Hillary went to Wall Street and told them, hey, you've got to cut it out. Right, I'm sure they'll get right on deleting that incredibly valuable data, about 50 million Facebook users. And the details of this are somewhat complex. They involve a particular app made by, a university of Cambridge lecturer called this is your digital life. All one word, uh, no, no spaces. This is your digital life. The app launched in 2014 and the app through an entity called global science research took users to a survey. These surveys are common online and the survey paid them a dollar or two. And as most of these apps do, it requested access to Facebook user information. 270,000 users went ahead and gave the app that permission, but the app was able to also harvest information of a total of 50 million users, most of whom did not give permission like the 270,000 users. Now this is already bad enough, but we've also learned that the professor working on this Alexander Kogan, who ironically enough might be Russian. Was actually working on the behalf of Strategic Communication Laboratories, which owns Cambridge Analytica and who was working for the Donald Trump campaign. Full circle once again. Cambridge Analytica, who's dealing with multiple scandals at once at this point, is saying they didn't know where the data came from, that this is all GSR and Kogan, and they weren't told exactly how they got the data. And of course, if they had known how they got the data, they would have turned it down. Now, does anybody believe? That the company that has no problem using uh, prostitutes for honey traps and blackmail entrapment would have a problem receiving Facebook user data if they knew where it came from, having a hard time with that. Uh, Cambridge Analytica says in a, a statement, "Quote: When it subsequently became clear that the data had not been obtained by GSR in line with Facebook's terms of service, Cambridge Analytica deleted all data received from GSR." So that I don't believe, but the big question. Cambridge Analytica aside is was Facebook complicit and if so, to what degree? And the answer is we don't know. Mark Zuckerberg is now being summoned by British officials, British elected officials. The FTC federal trade commission in the United States is starting to look into Facebook. And here's really the bottom line. I I hate to break it to you and I don't think this is going to be news to a lot of people in our audience. This is Facebook's business model. Now yeah, this went further. But if you listen to my interview about a month ago, six weeks ago, I don't remember exactly how long ago with Antonio Garcia Martinez who developed a lot of the Facebook ad infrastructure. If you read his book, chaos monkeys, Facebook is fundamentally a user data firm, right? It's not a social network primarily. It's not a marketer. It's not a messaging app, even though it does those things and has those features. This is a user data company and Edward Snowden. Tweeted something along these lines when the news broke, saying businesses that make money by collecting and selling detailed records of private lives were once plainly described as surveillance companies. Their rebranding as social media is the most successful deception since the Department of War became the Department of the, of Defense. I learned in an early college communi- uh, communication class a line that goes something like this. If you're not sure what the product is and you're not paying for anything, it's probably you or another said another way. The product is your attention. What is being bought and sold is getting your eyeballs onto an advertisement or a piece of content or whatever. And that is exactly what is going on here. Arguably this went further and we will see to what degree Facebook was aware of what was going on. What did happen immediately is that Facebook's stock price dropped when the news broke this is probably not going to impact their bottom line directly, right? Advertisers advertising with Facebook and we've advertised with Facebook by the way, are doing it because Facebook has such great, uh, user data, not despite that reality. Yeah, this creates a PR problem for Facebook. It's going to make regulators want to regulate Facebook, but it's not really a business problem until the regulation actually hurts them for the individual user. It's basically cost benefit, right? If you use Facebook, I use Facebook, Pat uses Facebook, we realize, or at least I think we, we would be wise to realize, that our data, our preferences, our likes, our friends, our activity, it could end up almost anywhere. Is that worth it to have Facebook and use Facebook? For a lot of people, it is. And there's a broader question here, right? What is the long term impact? of companies having such accurate and precise data about our preferences. We know that when it comes to news, the consequence of targeting at the level that is possible is echo chambers and algorithms that feed our biases and increase political partisanship. And that gets me to a really important line from Molly McHugh, Molly McHugh wrote a great article about this yesterday where she says, it doesn't matter if you don't use your Facebook feed for politics, your Facebook feed is using you for politics and I think that that is something we all sort of need to be aware of here right with products and services it's okay well they might be able to really well target uh, accurately target ads so that you'll buy stuff or sign up for services with elections it's potentially deciding the outcome of who our elected officials are and thus even if you say I don't really read news on Facebook I don't really care about this or that I'm just on there for the pictures or sharing stuff with my family. Even if you aren't doing politics on Facebook, these algorithms are having political impact. I don't know. And I wouldn't even dream of trying to predict, uh, what is ultimately going to happen in terms of regulation. But this is only the beginning of that in terms of an FTC investigation and summons from the United Kingdom of Mark Zuckerberg. And we will see where it goes. But this is, this is a major, major tech privacy scandal.
2: they did an actual really good piece of video journalism here, uh, where they, uh, they basically, they posed as a Sri Lankan businessman who was looking to fund political campaigns in Sri Lanka and wanted to contract Cambridge Analytica. Now it's actually a 20 minute documentary. I found a lot of other pieces actually in some ways more interesting than this. The fact that they do, uh, uh, they work for Kenyatta on both of his elections in Kenya. They do work in Eastern Europe. They do work on the uh, corporate side in China that was alluded to. How they set up um, independent companies and LLCs, presumably, to uh, get paid through but not leave a trail that they're working in different countries. They definitely they talk about ghosting and campaigns and working discreetly. I, I think these things are actually in some ways – the more prevalent and day in and day out things that we have to watch that apply to Cambridge Analytica and a whole other world of global political consultants, influence managers, and people that are connected with private intelligence firms, intelligence services. And as Yevgeny Morozov pointed out yesterday, uh, I think on Twitter, hopefully he'll elaborate on it, that the same tactics that people are decrying now as they have been turned inward in uk and united states-based campaigns brexit and trump specifically in cambridge analytica's case these same methods of uh, seeding and influence peddling and opinion shaping through social media and data mining um, were utilized by western governments to shape foreign policy strategy and foreign uh, propaganda Cambridge Analytica uh, claims that they have two distinct businesses, but they also work uh, on behalf of military uh, campaigns and 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 in with Western military services. So the notion that those two things would not be connected at the very even the most gentle and benign in terms of intellectual frameworks is delusional. A couple years ago. Uh, in 2016, and I'm going to elaborate on this on my show tonight, there was a piece about a Colombian hacker who was serving a jail sentence for admitted crimes of electoral fraud um, and campaign hacking for right-wing candidates across Latin America. He worked for a prominent Venezuelan political consultant who's based in Miami named J.J. Rendon and worked on campaigns in El Salvador, Colombia, and Mexico, and so on. If you read that article and the types of things that he admitted to with very documented evidence in the Bloomberg piece, you realize that, again, it's it, first of all, everybody is doing this. Rush is doing this. We're doing this. Campaign consultants are doing this. Intelligence services are doing this. Private intelligence services are doing this. And um, Mercer's, as an example, with Cambridge Analytica, f- funding them as a company, there's enormous private sector interest in this stuff. So... If we could start to draw back the Russia conversation to be a doorway into a broader conversation about manipulation of public through social data and mining, that's the bigger picture story and the longer term concern, and it's going to apply to every government consultancy and private agency in the planet. Now, that being said, here's the fun salacious part, where is a final meeting, um, with channel 4 and this is with a secret camera this is cambridge analytica ceo on uh, nicks i believe his last name is um maybe you could yeah i don't know his first name uh okay it, uh, excuse me alexander Nix. this is the first meeting that he is at with the pose with the journalists who are posing as sri lankan representatives and they talk about setting up honey traps then some girls around to the his house. And, yes. We have lots of history of things.
0: For example, you're saying when you're using the girls to introduce to the mini- to the local colour mm-hmm. and you're using the girls for this like uh, seduction, they are not local girls, not Sri Lankan girls. I wouldn't much. have thought so. Okay, it? Yeah. It some, just, that was just an idea.
3: You We bring some Ukrainians in on okay. holiday with us. You know? Right, right, right. You know, say
0: yes. They are very beautiful Ukrainian girls. They are very beautiful.
3: yes. I find that works very well. Please don't pay too much attention to what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Because I'm just giving you examples of what can, happen. What can be done and what, what has been done. Um, I mean, deep digging is interesting. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, you know equally effective it can be just to go and you know, speak to the incumbents and to um, offer them deal it's too good to be true make sure that that's video recorded you know these sorts of tactics are very effective
2: now what i like is he said these are things that could and i believe have been done which is a good, interesting word choice because in their denial, they actually, Cambridge Analytica says we never engage in legal activity uh, or the type of behavior described here. And what we do is we try to suss out clients and see if their intention is to get us to do something illegal. Let's just play the second piece of sound of... uh Cambridge Analytica employee, Mark Turnbull. He's the managing director of global politics on using hope and fear to affect behavior change. I think actually this is structurally more to the point and kind of understanding how these firms work in their, their frameworks.
3: There's no good fighting uh, an election campaign on the facts because actually it's all about emotion. Two fundamental human drivers, um, uh, when it comes to taking information on board, uh, effectively, are hopes and fears. And many of those are unspoken and even unconscious. You didn't know that was a fear until you saw something that just evoked that reaction from you. Right, right. And our job is to get is to drop the bucket further down the well than anybody else to understand what are those really deep-seated underlying fears concerns
2: and what's great about that is that's some of this is very smart and effective and some of this is also you know its own form of pseudoscience and woo to hustle a presumably super wealthy sri lankan to spit them a ton of money to manipulate campaigns. But there you have it. These are the people they were. You know, Steve Bannon, I believe, was on the board. The Mercers invested in this. Michael Flynn has recently acknowledged, Mike Flynn, that he uh, was involved with them. uh, And they have been a major force in the consulting side of the global right wing. And there's always been parallel track consulting firms with um, global political movements or global political governance.
4: Developers for a long time could get access to tremendous collections of data about millions of Facebook users at any given time. This was standard practice and policy at Facebook between at least 2010 and 2015. And that seems to have been lost in the story because the Cambridge Analytica story is such a great spy novel. It has this idea that there's brainwashing and manipulation going on, right? That's almost irresistible. For years, we've been raising these issues, and everyone's been saying, where's the harm? Well, here we are. We're finally at that moment.
5: There is this impulse in in the press because Cambridge Analytica has mainly arch-conservative clients, including briefly the Trump campaign, and because the Mercer family has such a big stake in the company to, to portray all of this as the latest evil manipulation from the far right. But Obama used approximately the same techniques, No. Now, in 2008, Facebook was pretty new.
4: And the idea was, this is where the youngsters are, right? This is (laughs) long before my mom joined Facebook. And so Barack Obama spent a lot of time interacting with people on Facebook. There were Facebook groups devoted to supporting Obama. And he bought a lot of ads on Facebook before that was a thing to do. So he was the Facebook candidate. And then by 2000. 12 the Obama campaign developed an app that sucked out all of the data, the same kinds of data that Cambridge Analytica now has been using to allegedly profile voters, right? A lot of us were concerned about this in 2012, and it was really hard to get anyone to care. All the stories that came out were about the digital savvy of the Obama campaign. After the Obama campaign Facebook decided, let's take all this in house. Let's become the political consultant to the world. You have to go to Facebook. Cambridge Analytica claimed to be able to profile people by personality type, which is about as useful as profiling people by astrological sign. There is no evidence that you can move behavior. Just because you tag people with a relative score for openness or conscientiousness or neuroticism, right? Isn't it better just to know someone really cares about gun rights or really cares about abortion?
5: That can move a voter. And that's what Facebook gives people. Can you tell me what Facebook is allowed to do and what it's not allowed to do with the data it collects? Facebook got in big trouble back in 2011. The Federal Trade
4: Commission got some complaints from Facebook users and from some privacy organizations. They were worried that all of these application developers that had tied themselves on to Facebook, Farmville, Mafia Wars, or Words with Friends, those games we're sucking out all kinds of important data from people's Facebook profiles. And that's because when you signed up to use these games, you gave them permission to look at your profile and take out basic information. What? was not clear was that you were also granting these games permission to take out all the information about your friends. That was something that the Federal Trade Commission wanted to call a halt to. So in 2011, they got Facebook to agree to a consent decree. And that consent decree basically said, look, Facebook, you can't have this sort of activity where friends' data also gets exported. You also have to get explicit permission from people when they interact with apps that are going to take their data out. Beyond that, they put the burden on Facebook to make sure that when that data exits Facebook, it doesn't go to a fourth party. And if people cancel their Facebook accounts, that Facebook goes out into the field and makes sure that those game developers, those app developers, those personality quiz developers, those political campaigns like the Obama campaign in 2012, that those developers remove the data from their collections. So this was something Facebook agreed to do under penalty of law back in 2011. But clearly, Facebook did not institute a program to make sure that your data would disappear if you deleted it from Facebook. Facebook did not enforce contracts with third-party app developers to make sure that fourth parties like Cambridge Analytica didn't get that data.
5: So uh, Zuckerberg, after disappearing from public view for three or four days, on Wednesday issues a memo and goes on CNN with Anderson Cooper and sits for a Q&A with the New York Times in a sort of mea culpa saying you know we let this stuff get away from us we didn't closely audit these third parties like app developers who have possession of all of this extremely personal data but seemed to me he was shifting the blame to them for breaking the deals that they've signed instead of taking responsibility for all this going on. You have seen Facebook operate in the public eye now for more than 10 years. Do you think that he was being straight with the New York Times and CNN and all of us?
4: You know, Zuckerberg promised to install a bunch of new safeguards for user privacy. He didn't get into detail. But just looking at the outline of what he said would happen, I can't help wondering if Facebook wasn't already going to do all these things? Because in August, European law is going to require a much higher level of scrutiny and many more restrictions on how companies like Facebook operate with our data. They have a whole new set of laws coming into effect. It's going to change how all of these companies operate in Europe. And Anybody whose data gets exported to Europe or anybody who communicates with anyone in Europe, meaning Americans, you know, they're going to be protected by European law as well. So I suspect that all that Zuckerberg was promising yesterday is stuff that Facebook was already planning to do to deal with European law. Right now, his biggest concern is Congress.
5: If these issues have existed for the whole history of Facebook and if – the company has signed consent agreements and it has the capacity to do all of the things that Zuckerberg on Wednesday claimed to be now undertaking, you have to wonder, well, why hasn't it actually done this stuff till now? Is it because it's antithetical to its business model?
4: Yeah. There's only two things wrong with Facebook, what it is and what it does, right? So what it demands of us is our attention. It wants us hooked. Really, the company is geared around the fact that there is a true belief at the core of the company and in Mark Zuckerberg's heart and soul that the more time we spend on Facebook, the better we will be to each other. It's a missionary model, right? It's an almost faith-based model. Thousands of years of human history notwithstanding, Mark Zuckerberg believes that the more we interact with each other, the better
5: we will be to each other. Do you think he's really that messianic or that that's just a rationalization for the business model, which is more like the heroin dealer's business model? It is antithetical to
4: Facebook's business model. It's antithetical to the dominant business model of Silicon Valley. It's also antithetical to the ideology of Mark Zuckerberg. And I think Mark Zuckerberg is a true believer in Facebook. I see no reason to doubt his sincerity. He's a deeply intelligent and sincere person who cares a lot about the state of the world. The problem with Mark Zuckerberg is he's deeply uneducated. He seemed to have started on this route without pondering the terrible things that human beings can and have done to each other. He seems not to have considered the possibility that our hard problems are not merely solved by proximity and connection. It's a naive ideology that he holds, but it's actually pretty pervasive in Silicon Valley because it was pervasive in the hacker communities of the 1990s from which he emerged. This notion that if ideas and information flow freely and without friction, suddenly we would all know more and food would taste better. I mean, this was a serious line of thought. In the 1990s. And it's still with us. You can still see it in the core ideologies of Google and Facebook and a 100 other companies. The last two years should have shaken him out a bit. But, you know, he still spends too much time having lunch with Henry Kissinger in Davos and not enough time reading Aristotle or reading National Geographic, for that matter. Right. And seeing the ways in which the world is a lot more complex place than he allows.
5: We now have had more than 10 years of experience of Facebook letting private data get into third-party hands, and for marketers and governments and criminals to have a ever-higher resolution picture of ourselves. This is not new, and yet we continue to have this conversation.
4: It doesn't mean it has to be that way. It doesn't mean that they have to call the shots for the world. Our great hope lies in our activity as citizens, demanding that our regulators and our legislators take this problem seriously. But I just don't see how Facebook can deeply confront the wide variety of problems facing it and the wide variety of problems that it has caused in the world without looking at its core functions, its advertising system, its data gathering system, its algorithm. And once you do that, you basically have to dismantle Facebook if you want to address these problems in a serious way.
0: Today's episode is sponsored by the Dollar Shave Club. DollarShaveClub.com delivers everything you need to look, feel, and smell your best, including razors, shave butter, shampoo, body wash, toothpaste, everything you need to look, smell, and feel your best. And since DSC delivers everything to you, you don't have to set foot in a store. And as someone who loves avoiding stores that's a big plus for me you can get an amazing high quality shave from your dollar shave club executive razor it's the best razor i've ever used and their dr carver's shave butter is fantastic it goes on clear so you can see where you're shaving and you know i'm no snob when it comes to personal care items so it's really the affordable price compared to store razors that caught my attention in the beginning but with dsc it's not a trade-off with quality you still get a great product and save in the process. So clean up your bathroom and your morning routine. Join Dollar Shave Club today for just 5 bucks With free shipping, you'll get the six-blade Executive Razor plus trial size of shave butter, body cleanser, and one-wipe Charlies. Then keep the blades coming for a few bucks more a month. Get yours at dollarshaveclub.com best. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash best.
6: As many as maybe 50 million Facebook users recently learned that their data had been swept up and that they may have unknowingly given away their own information and also their friends. We're told they did that by clicking on an app for a personality quiz, which got their info and then sold it to a political targeting firm called Cambridge Analytica, which ended up working for the Trump campaign in the 2016 elections. A lot of people were surprised to learn that Facebook gave their data to private companies that sold it for political purposes, but I don't think you were.
7: Yeah, no, this is a problem that uh, a couple of us have been trying to warn people about now for years, ever since big social networking platforms like Facebook became the de facto playing field for, you know, politics online. And five, six years ago, when Barack Obama, uh, you know, won re-election, it was all the rage that, you know, look what a brilliant job they had done collecting people's data and using it to target them more effectively or using using it to raise money more effectively or to spend advertising money more effectively. You know, this was the the, the moment of big data and campaign considered to be the secret weapon that uh, enabled Obama to beat Romney.
6: The um, attorney generals of 37 states are asking Mark Zuckerberg, is our Facebook data safe and secure? And the FTC is mm-hmm. investigating Facebook mm-hmm. for what they call a misuse of data in what they call a quote data breach. Would you call this a data breach?
7: Well, the word breach implies that, you know, somebody got in there in an unauthorized way and took the data. And so it's you know, it makes it sound like data that Facebook here was breached by some outside force. And that's not the right word because in fact this was Facebook itself has been authorizing millions of app developers to build games and other kinds of interactives on their platform going back several years, and doing very, very little to check to see whether those app developers were actually holding on to the data that they were, th- that they were then getting their hands on and using it appropriately. Now Facebook says they're going to go and investigate and, and, and check, you know, forensically to see if that were the case. But it's already clear that, you know, to anybody who's been following this closely, that you know these barn doors have been open for a very long time the only thing that cambridge analytica did that slightly different is that they didn't take they didn't build the app themselves they bought the data from an academic who had you know created this personality app but as you know i've pointed out in some of my writing in 2012 the obama campaign created an app called i'm in and they invited their supporters to click on it and join and about a million people voluntarily chose to do that and the theory there was that then Obama's campaign would be able to give you personalized content that they would then encourage you to share with your friends and this worked very well they called it targeted sharing it was a big factor in in helping boost turnout and in moving messages you know in in timely ways around the whatever the, the message was that the campaign wanted to communicate but the campaign itself Insiders who worked on this have said that in the course of getting a million people to join in, they actually were able to harvest their word, the information on 98% of all of Facebook's adult American users at the time. How is that possible
6: that that, since, since 98% of, of Facebook users were not Obama supporters and didn't register, didn't, didn't become uh, uh, followers of the Obama uh, Facebook page?
7: Because uh, when you when those first million people click and say, I'm in, they were authorizing access not just to their own personal information, but to the information of the people who were their friends. And that is a, a design feature of Facebook. And so the knowledge... Uh, and, and so all those other people didn't give authorization. It, you know, this is like, it's the difference between you giving me your phone number and me giving someone else your phone number, yeah. okay? Because I have it. As your friend, you, you, know, you may trust me not to give away your phone number, okay? We have sort of an implicit understanding, right? Like it's private. But in this case, Facebook treated that friend relationship as permission in the reverse direction, which is that it became okay if I said, you can know everything that Facebook knows about me. That includes knowing who my friends are, and what they've said about themselves on their Facebook profile pages.
6: There is one difference between you giving people my phone number and what's happening at Facebook, which is Facebook's business model is that they will sell my information right. to make billions of dollars and make Mark Zuckerberg the third richest person in, what, the history of humanity or something.
7: Yes, yes, <laughs> this, is, this is exactly right. And so we call this a platform monopoly, and we think it's gotten too big and too powerful, and it has not been properly overseen by government regulators. I mean, the fact that these Attorney general, attorneys general and the FTC are acting now is good, but they've had the power to investigate for years, and they've been asleep at the switch. The FTC actually, back in 2011, in response to prior complaints about Facebook playing fast and loose with its users, private information, got Facebook to agree to a consent decree, which in theory now gives the FTC the power to go and enforce huge fines, $40,000 per violation. Wow. I mean, they could bankrupt the company or pay off the the national debt. Take your your pick. (laughs) Um, And and maybe they will impose some tough uh, measures. We doubt it. Uh, Don't forget, this is a company with a lot of political power. They've done a lot over the years to ingratiate themselves with both with, you know, the leadership of both political parties. Sheryl Sandberg, the number two at Facebook, who's been a little bit less visible in the current scandal, came out of the Clinton administration um, and is still deeply tied to power brokers in the Democratic Party. So we, you know, it's doubtful that there's going to be tough regulation here, but it, it is good There's finally a big wake up call happening.
6: I noticed that you have a Facebook page. You are not quitting Facebook. Shouldn't we all quit Facebook? Wouldn't that teach them a lesson or something?
7: The problem with a consumer boycott is that if every, literally, if every American user of Facebook quit tomorrow, uh, the companies total user base would only go down by 10%. Oh, man. So, you know, this this, this, I refer to this as Facebookistan. It's the Mm. largest country in the world. It has 2.1 billion
6: (laughs) members. Wow.
7: So practically speaking, it's a little bit of a luxury to talk about quitting as if that's going to change their behavior, right? Like that is not the move if you think it's going to make them suddenly uh, behave better. Uh, The move is to use our power as citizens of the United States, not of Facebookistan, (laughs) where we have very few rights, to demand that the government and the powers that be enforce the law. And if the law isn't strong enough, that we strengthen the privacy laws. The Europeans are taking some steps in the right direction. I mean, they are asking these big platform companies to get the affirmative okay. Every time you are engaged with them that you are saying, yes, you can have my data and yes, you can use it for the following purposes and explain in clear English, not an eight point type. I've said to people for a long time, and it is not just my uh, uh, quote, but anytime you are using the Internet where you are not paying for the service, you need to understand that that's because you are the product being sold. And if you are comfortable with that trade-off, fine. But that if you're not, you either have to pay for things because they're valuable and you want to have some control, or you have to demand, like in the case of Facebook, that we get tougher government regulation so that these kinds of privacy scandals, it's not a breach, this is their business model, so that it's no longer possible. And if that means that breaking up the company is the only way to do it, and Mark Zuckerberg Uh, has to stop being the third richest man in the world, so be it.
6: Is there a realistic possibility that we could break up Facebook?
7: Yes, I think there is, for the same reason that uh, in past cycles we broke up AT&T and we broke up Microsoft. You know, there has been tough antitrust enforcement before. It's cyclical, and obviously we – and it isn't just Facebook, by the way. We may need to look at Amazon. We may need to look at Google because these are also big platform monopolies that are abusing their power, too, in in ways perhaps not as, as troubling as certainly the case we're talking about now. But I think the answer is yes, this is possible. Don't forget, it is still a competitive industry, and there are Facebook does have enemies who would also be interested in seeing it broken up because they have acted in ways that are deeply anti-competitive to new startups. What Facebook does now is it doesn't innovate, it buys its competition, And that's a serious question in and of itself. I would say, for starters, the one thing we may see happen sooner rather than later is that regulators come in and say, you know what, Facebook, for the next five years, you don't get to buy any of your competition. You don't get to buy Instagram. You don't get to buy Snapchat. You you know, these new things get to develop on their own.
8: Finally tonight, a message for Mark Zuckerberg. Thank you, sir, and thank you, Facebook, for letting me connect with so many people here on this program, on my personal Facebook page, and through my own news outlet, News and Guts. You have connected hundreds of millions of people who might never have crossed paths again or ever. It is a staggering public service and a breathtaking public good. You should be proud, but not too proud. It is also fraught with peril. Human communications have always been regulated, if only by human biology. Word of mouth only outraced foot speed a mere moment ago in evolutionary terms. And now vast warehouses of facts can be vacuumed up in the blink of an eye. Lethal narratives of fiction can be spread just as fast. As Howard Beale's boss told him, Mr. Zuckerberg, you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. You accelerated the harvesting of information and the dissemination of disinformation faster than evolution could keep up. Humanity has a lot of catching up to do. We all have to be more rigorous, not just about what we say, but what we believe, and even what we choose to care about. Our instincts on those fronts do not serve us well, so we need to surpass them and eventually retrain them. But in the meantime, Mr. Zuckerberg, you are making things worse, and it has to stop. You apologized in full-page newspaper ads, and that's good. The newspapers can use the money. And you have said you are open to regulation, which is also good because it's coming. Federal officials just today said that they are investigating whether Facebook deceived people about its privacy measures. But it's not enough. When technology assumes a fundamental social function it acquires social responsibilities, which you now have. Here they are. Facebook must be transparent. You have to tell us who is getting our information and why. Facebook must be more libertarian. Silicon Valley leans toward libertarian policies when it comes to others using its technology. But you must also be libertarian in letting Facebook itself determine how it will use this technology. This means not just blocking, but outing those who would use the platform to deceive others. Facebook has to stop disrupting. Disrupting all manner of communication, publishing, journalism, disruption of functioning, social utility is a bad thing. The tech obsession with disruption isn't a love for innovation. It is a poorly veiled attempt at extracting wealth from the gaps between technology and regulation. Be better. And finally, it wouldn't kill you to work up some kind of reality check so the fabulous portraits everyone paints of their lives don't send the rest of us into spirals of despair about our own. This is said in a friendly and respectful fashion, but you should understand that none of this advice involves charity on your part. This is about Facebook's survival, pure and simple. If you don't change things, people will leave faster than you can say MySpace. But in the meantime, don't keep telling us Facebook is a swimming pool while you're still letting others turn it into a cesspool.
9: Faces the biggest challenge it's ever faced in its history.
10: That's Fred Vogelstein. He's been covering Silicon Valley for almost two decades, and he's now a contributing editor at Wired Magazine in the US.
9: There's absolutely a recognition within the company that there's a problem. And, you know, Zuckerberg doesn't want to be a pariah. He's created this incredible tool. People seem to be using it for ill in many ways. If he doesn't fix that, they risk the entire franchise.
10: For months, he says, Mark Zuckerberg and senior Facebook executives denied there was a problem. People spreading fake news on Facebook to influence the U.S. election? Crazy, said Mark Zuckerberg, days after Trump won.
9: If you've spent the past 10 years of your life building something that has turned out to be an enormous success, it's very hard to imagine that it's, instead of bringing people together, tearing them apart. And I think just as a human being, it was difficult for Zuckerberg to come to grips with that.
10: But now it seems he has. Mark Zuckerberg no longer denies there's a problem with fake news and hate speech, and he's got plans for getting it off Facebook.
9: Until quite recently, the content that attracted the most attention on Facebook were short news bits with clickbaity headlines. Facebook is starting to discourage those kinds of stories and to encourage longer, more in-depth pieces, stories that will make them feel like they've learned something rather than just eaten a piece of candy.
10: And what does that mean in practice, though? So, you know, for a user of Facebook who's listening to this right now, how would it change their experience of Facebook?
9: So one of the things that most people don't think about when they look at newsfeed is that whether or not the story is from the BBC or Wired or the New York Times or It all looks very much the same as stories about my dog, your daughter's wedding. So, for example, one of the things that I think you're going to see Facebook do is make it easier to identify various news brands that you're familiar with.
10: The idea is that with those visual cues, it'll be easier to spot fake news. So Facebook won't be doing the fact-checking itself. It's outsourcing it to us. It's also experimenting with what it calls a downvote button, where people can make comments about posts, saying whether they think they're misleading or offensive. And that's not all. Facebook isn't just going after fake news. It's going after the millions of fake users, too.
9: They're hiring something like 10,000 people to better check how accounts are being used on Facebook. But obviously... Facebook can't actually start requiring people to present a passport or a driver's license every time they want to open a Facebook account. Do I think that they'll be able to be perfect at it?
10: No. And here we get to the crux of Facebook's problem. However many people it hires, however many fake accounts it closes down, it'll never be able to weed out every piece of hate speech or fake news. And come election time, as the losing side picks over what went wrong, it'll be easy to blame Facebook.
9: And so the challenge that Facebook faces is it could do everything right over the course of the next six months, but it could also wind up getting tarred just as hard.
10: So is Facebook in trouble? Well, A billion people are still logging on every day, and it's still one of the biggest and most powerful companies in the world. But power has come at a cost. Its own executives say they never imagined the forces it would unleash, and now they want to rein them in. The question for Facebook is this. Can it clamp down on the fake news and hate speech without losing its original mission? Connecting people and allowing them to express themselves get the balance wrong, and people will fall away. And just as Facebook grew because everyone started signing up, once enough people log off, it could create a momentum that's hard to stop.
3: George Herbert Walker Bush and Bill Clinton sold us on the idea that we no longer needed a manufacturing economy here in the United States. Because the Internet was coming. This was 1992. Hey, NAFTA is just fine. We don't, you know, let those manufacturing jobs go to go to Mexico and China. It's no big deal. We're going to make money on the Internet. It's going to be a brand new business model. And this really was, you know, the essence of their sales pitch. And now we have seen what that new economy looks like. And what it looks like is spying for sale. Facebook takes all the information that you give them and compiles it into a profile of you, which they then sell to people who want your money or who want your vote. Your internet service provider, your ISP, now that ver- former Verizon lawyer and now head of the FCC, Ajit Pai, has succeeded in destroying net neutrality, will soon begin, if they haven't already started, tracking every single mouse click that you do reading every email that you write or receive, and checking out every one of your online purchases to get information that they can sell for a profit. Your smart TV is tracking every show you watch, when and for how long, and selling that information to marketers and networks, yep, sure enough. You might cover up the camera and say, no, they're not spying on me, but yes, they are. And even your credit card company is now selling your information. What have you bought recently that you'd rather not have the world know? Or maybe not even recently, maybe last year or the year before or the year before that. To paraphrase Dwight Eisenhower's Cross of Iron speech, this is not a real economy at all in any true sense. It's a parody of an economy with a small number of winners like Mark Zuckerberg and all the rest of us as losers, including our democracy. While it's true that Facebook's malignant business model may well provide a huge opportunity for a competitor to offer a, uh, hey, $3 a month that we don't track you, we don't spy on you, we don't sell your data plan. And Facebook might even want to shift into that to give people, you know, for a price. You know, if I was on Facebook, well, I am on Facebook. I would gladly pay $3 a month to opt out, not have my my, uh, personal information sold. But it's still fails to address the importance of privacy in the context of society and law-slash-rule-making. We can no longer trust corporations in America with our personal information. If this isn't obvious now, it should be. Even your doctor or your hospital are going to now require you to sign a form, read it next time you go in, allowing them to sell your information to third parties. It's been decades since we've had a conversation in America about privacy. What does that word mean? How should it be applied? You know, much like the NFL provides solid rules for how football games are to be played, government sets the rule for how business is played. The Facebook crisis may well provide us with a great opportunity to again discuss privacy and what we should and shouldn't consider private information people will say, well, you know, what are the Fourth Amendment and all that kind of thing? Well, the Fourth Amendment protects us from government snooping and spying without due process. But nothing in the Constitution protects you or me from our Internet service provider or from Facebook or Twitter or any other company that we're doing business with, particularly if they're giving us something free. Nothing protects us from them spying on us. But lawmakers can easily set the rules of business to establish new privacy guidelines for the 21st century. You know, this is, this, is, this is like the job of Congress. This is why we have Congress, right? So the question, what should be private? Where are the boundaries? What are the rules that should be set? You know, it seems to me if we're going to engage in a conversation about rulemaking, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, at 202-808-9925, if we're going to engage in a conversation about rulemaking, about you know, the government deciding what is and isn't appropriate with regards to things like corporate spying, that the government should at least mandate transparency in spying. Right? This is our new business model, spy and sell. Right. When Facebook or your doctor or your credit card company sells information about you I believe they should be required to tell you exactly what information they sold and to whom and when. Just the simple transparency requirement would solve a lot of these problems. Businesses, of course, are going to scream, oh, we can't afford compliance, it's an onerous requirement. You know, every time I, I sell the fact that you love dogs but have a cat allergy and you buy anti-allergy medications, every time I sell that, I only make a few cents per sale, but it's going to cost me 20 cents to send you a letter with that information, or it might cost you 5 cents to, to pull together all the, all the information, what part of you and your collective body of information that they sold. And you know, that may be true. It will, in fact, decrease the profitability of companies like Facebook, whose primary business model is spy and sell. And it will incrementally reduce the revenue to medical groups, credit card companies, uh, websites and Internet service providers who make money on the side doing spy and sell. But we have a long history here in the United States of America of saying to business, if that business model is destructive to our society, you can't do it. We did it with slavery. We did it with child labor. We're doing it with financially lucrative but discriminatory practices from redlining to race and gender pay gaps. Other examples include the minimum wage law, bans on predatory loan practices, child labor laws requiring companies not to pollute. Just because a company can make money doing something doesn't mean it should be legal and or unregulated. The Internet has indeed turned into a thing, every bit as powerful and profitable as manufacturing once was. But we had several centuries of trial and error experience with regulating industrial manufacturing, from regulating wages to regulating pollution to regulating product safety standards. We need now to develop real and meaningful standards for the Internet economy and to get our personal data under control. The founders wrote the Fourth Amendment because they were concerned about an oppressive government that couldn't be fought and couldn't be changed because it knew everything about us. This was basically what England was doing to them. They never envisioned a day when a few billionaires could do the same thing, even to the point of using myths, truths, lies, in a data-targeted way to change an entire Government. Yes, the spy and sell business model is why Donald Trump is in the White House and why the Republicans are in Congress or control Congress. We need a serious discussion of privacy. What is privacy? What are the appropriate parameters of privacy? What is the role of government in protecting our privacy from predatory corporate actors?
1: We've just
0: heard clips today, starting with The David Pakman Show explaining the misuse of Facebook data by Cambridge Analytica. The Majority Report followed some more details about the inner workings of Analytica, including potential bribery and entrapment. On the media, discuss how these Facebook alarms have been ringing for years. Start Making Sense also talked about how this use of Facebook data was anything but surprising. Dan Rather gave his message to Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. The Inquiry discussed the challenge Facebook now faces. And finally, Tom Hartman gave his commentary on the broader issue of the business model of spying and selling our data. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you.
11: Hi, Jay. This is Marguerite from uh, Fortuna, California. Um, I made the call right after the opiate episode and I forgot, but thankfully, in from Alabama reminded me. I'm actually a primary care physician in an area where there's a very high level of opiate prescriptions. Um, there's actually about three prescriptions for every person who lives out here. And so a lot of my job is actually leaning down on opiates. And there's a reason for that. The reason is, is that by the data, what we know is that opiates used chronically actually can lead to more pain. There is actually a JAMA article that was released March 6th from a study, a randomized controlled study back in 2015 that actually shows us in a compare trial with a group that were given pain medications with opiates, ones that were given pain medications without opiates, randomized it out no and what they found is people who were on the one with opiates actually noted increased pain. Fortunately, we actually have a lot more medications that can target inflammation and the nerve receptors than just opiates at this point in time. And we know there's an increased risk of death with opiates. Um, Anyone who is over about 100 milligrams of morphine, all opiates come from morphine. So even if you're on, you know, Norco or Percocet, or oxycodone or um, MS sulfate or any of those other ones, it all is made from morphine. And people who are on over 100 milligrams of morphine are at increased risk of death. CDC actually recommends that no one be on over 30 milligrams chronically. And now the data shows that with opiates, you can get a hyperanalgesia, which means you actually get increased pain. Your pain receptors are actually set up so that they're going to send more pain signals to your brain from being on opiates for a long period of time. So those are some of the many reasons why the physician in there said, oh, opiates are great pain medications. Well, for short periods of time, that is true. So you break your leg, you just had C-section. Any of those terrible type of things, yes, opiates are reasonable for a short period of time, meaning about, you know, under a month, you know, two weeks. Over that, there's a significant risk of causing increased pain and worsening outcomes. So I know this is very frustrating to many patients who have been treated with chronic pain medication, chronic opiate medications in the past. But there are better solutions out there. And The data is all showing now in the long run that our patients are better without it. So just wanted to bring that small point in. Please look up the JAMA article. It was excellently done. It's from um, March 6th of JAMA. I'm actually handing it out to all my patients. Thanks for all you do, Jay. Bye.
12: Hi, my name is Sam, and I live in Nashville, Tennessee. I am a Trump voter and I love the show. Uh, as a Trump voter, I do find myself feeling misunderstood and misrepresented quite often. Uh, one thing I really want you and your team to know is that if Trump becomes tyrannical in any way or um, moves to form a dictatorship or commits any human rights atrocities, both myself and, and the many Trump voting friends that I have would be right there with you leading the charge against him. And uh, we didn't vote for him because we like him as a person. Um, he's narcissistic. Uh, And along with a lot of other, you know, things we really don't like, uh, we voted for him because we, we value individual liberty and the values of the constitution. And he was our best bet to get closer to that. And, you know, my Trump voting friends and I want to end cronyism. We want to end the war on drugs. We want to legalize narcotics. You know, we want prison reform, police reform. We want to fix the immigration system. We want to be able to buy damn alcohol on Sunday. Uh, we want to stop overthrowing governments and get out of Afghanistan um, And we want many other things that I think would surprise a lot of people on the left. Uh, Anyway, love the show. Keep up the good work. Hey, it's Sam from Nashville calling again. You know, you were talking about American militarism. You gave an analogy about a guy goes to the bar, gets in a fight every weekend. Um, You know, he's got great excuses for it, but the obvious common theme is this guy and although I don't want to defend the guy getting into a fight every weekend, I will say, since the guy has been fighting, the bar is a lot better place to be. And he's, you know, arguably the most likable guy in the bar in the fact that, you know, he's most well-known, influential guy. Um, a lot of people do look up to him a lot. A lot of people emulate him and want to be like him. And, uh... You know, obviously we're comparing this to the very war-heavy years that the United States has been in existence. And I think it's safe to say uh, that the United States, since its foundation, has been the most influential country in the world, being that its revolution really overflowed into England, France, and um, really created a time of human flourishing like the history of man has never known. Probably the highlight of that being that abject poverty went from 1 in 2 worldwide to 1 in 20. So, you know, although the wars of late definitely seem like it's the guy in the bar picking on some guys who just kind of had a hard life. And the fact that we, you know, Libya, Iraq, uh, Afghanistan, wars like that seem to be pretty. Um, the motive is so vague and muddy that uh, most people don't even really understand what's going on over there. So, uh, as always, really appreciate the show, even though, you know, like I said in my last voicemail, here I am, Trump supporter, loving the show. Uh, I feel like us Trump supporters are very, very misunderstood. So um, I'll continue to listen, continue to appreciate. Uh, Again, thank you so much for what you do.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. And I'm so glad we heard from Sam. It's rare that uh, we hear from conservatives. I know they're out there. I know they're listening. They just happen to not call in that often, not even to criticize and disagree with me. They they just tend to not call at all. Uh, so I'm glad to hear from Sam, the Trump voter, who is misunderstood. I will take him at his word that he's misunderstood. I I, I tend to think that I have some decent understanding of, of Trump voters, but I'll take him at his word for now. He called and, and sort of most, well, he called twice, but in his first message, he was sort of mostly pointing out that he agrees with more issues with progressives than we might think he does and that we would probably be very surprised about that. My response to that is I am probably less surprised than he thinks I am. Because that fits a pattern I'm very familiar with. Uh, Liberals and progressives have been saying for years that progressive ideas, like the ones uh, Sam was talking about, and, and dozens of others, are supported by an enormous majority of people in America when you ask them, on a case-by-case basis. When you just say, you know, here's a policy idea, you don't tell them who came up with it, you don't say what party it's affiliated with or anything like that, you just say, here's an idea, do you like it or do you not like it? Uh, when you run down a list of progressive ideas, they're supported by 60, 70, 80% of people or more sometimes. So for Sam to call in and say, hey, like surprise, surprise, I actually agree with some of this stuff, I don't find that surprising because a lot of people agree with that stuff. Then, you know, he, he's, he also talked about personal freedom. That's kind of where I want to focus a bit today. I, I find it really interesting the way that people talk about personal freedom. First of all, I feel like that term hasn't been around forever. You know, like, like when I think of. You know, I, I go into the, the deep well of American propaganda decades and decades ago. Like, I remember talking about freedom. I don't remember talking about personal freedom. I don't remember that being a big thing. And, and so what I'm wondering from Sam is, like, how do you define personal freedom? Like, what does that mean to you? I'll give you my thoughts, uh, and, and my differing ideas of, of freedom. The way conservatives talk about it a lot is framed in terms of, freedom from and so that that can be like freedom from having to pay union dues or freedom from regulation or freedom from taxes to some degree or another and progressives think of it in a different way which i think is decently framed as freedom to and a lot more focus is on what people actually get to do in their lives with the various freedoms they have. And so, you know, we would say like we have the, or, or we want the freedom to act collectively to demand higher wages or better working conditions. We want the freedom to live, work, and raise kids in healthy environments. We want the freedom to not worry about the absolute basic necessities of life that can be better funded or regulated through taxes such as health care, infrastructure, safe drinking water, food, drug safety, all that sort of stuff. So so we want the freedoms to live in that way, which we see as better. Conservatives tend to focus on the freedom from, and they, they focus on all the things they don't want to have to do, all the things they don't want to be burdened with. But I don't know how much they see the connection with that trade off. If you're not burdened with union dues, you may be burdened with lower wages because you can't collectively bargain if you uh, are free from regulation you may then be burdened with unhealthy environments and so on so I'm, I'm wondering what sam's definition of personal freedom is because that's what he says that that's his like number one top issue which outweighs everything else you know to recap sam is against trump's personality he's against cronyism uh he's against the war on drugs he's in favor of prison, police, and immigration reform, and he's skeptical of foreign wars and presumably over-militarization. But also to recap, Trump is a garbage pile of a human. He's heading one of the most corrupt administrations in memory. They're ramping up the war on drugs. They're rolling back some of the small police and prison reforms that Obama had started. Uh, He's using immigrants as political pawns and racist scapegoats while showing no interest uh, in genuine fixes to the system. And he's proposed huge increases to our already uh, ridiculously bloated military budget. So Sam should just be unbelievably pissed about all of that, uh, I would assume. But he holds up personal freedom as, as his uh, guiding light, right? So that's obviously the thing we have to focus on. What is this freedom that we're talking about? And and you know how, how do we frame it? How do we think about it? How do we argue it? So personally... I think that, you know, I already sort of described the the freedom from and freedom to. And I think that the whole mantra of personal freedom is honestly, I I think it's a bit of a propaganda campaign, either intentionally run or just sort of uh, naturally manifested itself that is useful to create this focus on identity as an individual uh, you know when you use the word personal freedom instead of general freedom it it focuses the mind on the self the individual and and sort of erases everyone else and so the, the and the more a person identifies as an ind- individual the more powerless they are to stand up against any sort of powerful systemic forces and only, you know, alternately, only groups of people working collectively can make the de- demands of the powerful. So someone like Sam, who holds up personal freedom as the pinnacle of achievement that he's working towards, I don't know about Sam, but someone like him, you know, thinks that, uh, you know, it's good enough to have the freedom, for instance, to choose one's own job, and they think that's freedom. I get to choose whatever job I want, but every job that's available is run like a dictatorship, you know? There's the owner, the dictator, all the workers who get told what to do. It's like, it, you know, it's a step up from slavery, but not that much. You you don't have much say in what you want. Um, But a lot of people call that freedom. Whereas, you know, what a progressive wants is not only the freedom to choose their own job, but also the power to work collectively to exercise their own free will within that job to, to make themselves much more than just a pawn in a dictatorship. Um, you know, and this can be done through labor organizing or better yet cooperative ownership. Uh, but neither of those things are, are things that conservatives seem keen on promoting. And the key for powerful people is that if you can make someone feel free as an individual, even while they are completely trapped in a system that they are powerless to influence, then you have much less reason to fear that they will ever realize that if they joined forces with other individuals that they could threaten that person's power. And So the way I see it, the most rich and powerful people love to hear people like Sam demanding personal freedom above all else because that means Sam will never threaten their power. He will never be part of a movement that makes things better for himself and the many at the expense of the few. For instance, the way the union move movement brought us weekends in the 40 hour work week that we all take for granted now, like we Totally think that that's how things should be. We take it completely for granted, but that only happened because people were focused on collective power and collective freedom rather than individual freedom at the expense of any power okay moving on to Sam's second call you know he's talking about uh, the analogy with know uni- <laughs> the United States foreign policy being like a, a guy getting into drunken fights at the bar every weekend even though he swears that the other guy always swings first and everything he ever does is totally justified um you know but he has to point out that like you know hey maybe that's not the best but at least we're well liked and people want to be like us and w- which is sort of a classic conservative argument that like, things could be worse or to sort of ignore the issue at hand and point out like, yeah, but like we're still okay, which has has always rung hollow as an argument to me. But to be clear, no one is saying that the U.S. doesn't do anything right or that we're always hated around the world. No one is saying that. So it's it's sort of a... I mean, it's not quite a straw man argument, but kind of it's it's just a it's just a nonsense argument against something that no one's saying. I guess that is a straw man argument. Uh, One quick note, though, on people wanting to be like like us. I think that Sam may be confusing our pop culture with our politics. You know, we do a great job of pushing out our brands of movies and music and fashion and you know culture all around the world. So you can hear our pop songs on radio stations all over the world. But you would be hard-pressed to find any foreign governments looking to the U.S. for ideas on good government policies that they could sort of just steal and port over to themselves. You know, we are the outlier among advanced countries on just about everything. You know, healthcare, gun control, drug policy, immigration, labor rights, environmental protection regulation, um, promotion of renewable energy, using the cautionary principle for health and safety regulation, and on and on. No one is looking to us for advice on governing. Now, as far as uh, being respected in the rest of the world, uh, and, you know, Americans definitely feel like, hey, you know, we think we are number one, and everyone else probably thinks we're pretty great too. I-, I wish we would be a little bit more skeptical about that. You know how they say that one of the worst things about getting rich is that you can never tell which people are your friends because they genuinely like you, and which people just claim to be your friends because they want something out of you. That's how I think America should feel about all of that supposed respect and admiration we're getting all the time. You know, ever since the end of World War II, we have been the world's best and richest customer. And we know the customer's always right. You know, we got a head start on becoming a hyper-consumerist society because we were one of the only major countries that didn't have to spend any time rebuilding from the rubble of the war. So we got rich and fat on consumer capitalism. And everyone in the world who had anything to sell recognized us as the prime target to sell shit to. So even though, you know, we've gone through wave after wave of horrible foreign policy blunders that are seen like universally as unbelievably terrible, uh, with the occasional atrocities thrown in, you know, we still keep pumping out that our pop culture, the city on a hill propaganda, and Everyone else at least pretends to believe in it to some extent. And, and it's not all bullshit, but a lot more of it is bullshit than Americans are willing to believe. And some non-Americans really do have respect for the US, but probably a lot less than we like to think. So, and like to bring it back to the analogy, you know, if we're the drunk guy who gets in fights every weekend, but we still have the impression that most people there like and respect us, It might be because we buy the most rounds of drinks, you know? People may very well hate us, but, you know, they put on a friendly face, they put up with us because we keep the beer flowing and their bar tabs low. And now, and just for fun, I have some real numbers that I looked up to see what people actually think of us uh, these days and recently. International opinion polls on on various countries' influence in the world. Uh, The first results I found are from 2013, so this is right in the middle of the Obama years, Germany's way up at the top with like 59% positive, followed by Canada, UK, Japan, France, the EU, which is actually 28 countries altogether, then Brazil, then the US down at 45% positive impression of our country's influence. Again, that was back during the Obama years. And the second set is from 2017, about six months into Trump's term. But the article shed some interesting light on recent fluctuations. So at the end of Obama years. We had actually gotten a lot better. So the article says, An Ipsos global advisor poll on 25 nations shows other countries' views of America dimming notably over the past year. The gauge drops the U.S. to 15th place overall, with just 40% of respondents viewing the nation as having a, quote, positive influence on world affairs today, unquote. That's a full 24 percentage points below a year ago when the U.S. ranked 7th overall, unquote. So at the end of Obama years we'd gotten our numbers up to 64% positive still not as good as Canada or Australia or Germany still pretty good and that has now dropped within you know a year or so down to 40%. Interesting note though, you know as I said they they say that the US is 15th place on that list of nations but the EU which has 28 member nations is on that list. So the list goes Canada, 81% positive, followed by Australia, Germany, France, the UK, then the EU, which includes Germany, France, UK, and 25 other countries in which, you know, which are all collectively seen as having a positive influence by 57%, then India, then China, then the US at 40%, followed closely by Russia. So we're nicely sandwiched in between China and Russia. So back to Sam, you know, you, you seem to have supported a candidate who is doing pretty much the opposite of what you want on numerous key issues. And then you take comfort, at least in the fact that we have a respected reputation around the world, but that is also being completely shredded almost entirely due to Trump. So here's what I really hope you do. First, call back and explain what you mean by personal freedom. Like, explain what personal freedom gains you. We we already know what some of the freedom froms are. I've heard conservatives talk before. I know the stuff they don't like having to do, but what would those freedoms let you do? What are your freedoms to? And then, assuming you still support Trump and don't regret your vote, explain why you support him based on your explanation of personal freedom or whatever, if that's still the primary reason, uh, and explain why those reasons outweigh literally every other issue you mentioned, including the country's respectability around the world. I I would really like to hear from you. I'm not kidding. I'm not just messing with you. Uh, And of course, anyone else can call in. Comment on this. Uh, not not confined just to Sam. I'd love uh, you know there, there are other conservatives listening. I'd love to hear from any of them. Uh, one last thing though, you may recall we ran a climate ride fundraiser that I, I sort of wrapped up a month and a half ago or so. And and, and the truth is we didn't quite reach our goal. Uh, you know I've been doing some uh, fundraising on my own, friends and family and that sort of thing. But um, we're in the final push. And so the link to the Climate Ride fundraiser is in the show notes, and you can also find it at bestofleft.com. I'm working to raise a total of $5,000 to support Climate Ride organization, which helps fund climate and personal transport, you know, bicycle advocacy, all of those sorts of organizations. Climate Ride is an amazing organization that raises millions and millions of dollars for those types of groups. Uh, and so we're trying to help them do a better job of helping raise money. So if, if you want to support my ride, please check out that link. Uh, we're closing in on the final couple of weeks. That's like the real deadline, where like the event is going to happen this month. And uh, and so I got to hit that fundraising goal, and that I'm off to the Himalayas to ride through Bhutan for. Five days. So I'm very excited about that. And, um, and excited as always to be raising money for a good cause. So as always, keep the comments coming in, the number to dial 202-999-3991, that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening, thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestoftheleft, that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there and for details on the show itself including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog so coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington DC my name is Jay and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from (music) bestoftheleft.com